Hello, everyone, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I satisfy my own curiosity about any sort of thing, really, and then, you know, I hope to pique your curiosity in some of these areas as well, or maybe something totally unrelated. Maybe. Lifelong learning is what we're after here. Uh, So I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And this week, this episode, we're going to talk about part two of our ancient Greco-Roman plant garden mythology extravaganza. Ooh. Um, it's, it's kind of a mishmash of, of several things all slammed together because they're all pretty interesting. Perfect. Um, and, and unlike last week in which, last episode, oh dear, can't stop doing it. Uh, apparently we need to make this show weekly just so I can stop making this mistake. Yeah, just, just to just correct to this reason. one thing. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's, it's easier, clearly. Um, last time we spoke a lot about real history, <laughs> ancient history, yes. archaeology, excavation, that kind of stuff. And, and I did, I did tell you some mythology. This, uh, episode will be much more focused on the mythology. Okay. Um, but I will pepper in some actual history and, you know, facts about the plants and what the ancients use them for and all that stuff. Okay. Um, and just so you can remember or a quick reminder, um, these mythological stories are all linked because they're um, from Ovid's Metamorphoses, um, giant book of poetry in which he collected all the stories of transformation um, in Greco-Roman mythology. And uh, so we're going to stick with Ovid's Roman tales, um, but things might make more sense at some points if I pepper in some Greek since that did come first. Sure. So I'll probably hit you with some of that as well. Um, but other than that, we've got a lot of stories to get through because I'm not good at, uh, being brief, uh, so we should get going. Understandable. So, uh, teach me something. Awesome. So I talked, I talked this one up a few times last episode, so I thought I'd better start off this week with the story of Bacchus and the Pirates. Arr. Uh, they didn't say arr. Maybe, maybe that didn't, that didn't happen. It wasn't invented yet in pirate language. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was the basis of all pirate language. language. Um, So, in this tale, some very foolish pirates try to kidnap Bacchus, and they don't do well. Hmm. I mean, that's the summary of the story. Good story. Um, So, the helmsman of the ship, um, Aceites of Maonia, is the only member of the pirate crew left. uh, I mean, well, left as a man. By the end of our story. Okay. So allow me to explain. I mean, you know, transformations. This one's not too hard sure. to figure out. But uh, uh, you'll see what they transform into. That's the big surprise, right? Of course. Um, so the parts, they stopped at the Bay of Chios to stay the night. And the next morning, some of the crew members caught a young, they say youth or boy. Um, when, when ancient translations say youth or, well, I don't know, probably a teenager. Okay. Um. And he was stumbling around in kind of a drunken haze, and CETs got a little suspicious. There's just something about him. There's something about this boy, and the CETs thought, I think this is a god. Got it. Something it looks off about him. He's too perfect looking, he's too angelic, he's glowing, all that stuff, you know. So CETs warns his shipmates about this feeling, but they don't listen to him. Um, CETs tells the boy... What divine power resides in that body, I do not know. Some otherworldly force does inhabit it. 
whoever you are, be favorable toward us and assist our undertakings. Show kindness to these men, too. But, you know, the crew just gets mad at Asiates for daring to apologize on their behalf or ask for kindness on their behalf or praying for them. They, sure. So they just yell at Asiates for a while about what a jerk he is and uh, take this kid on board anyways. Um, By take on board, you mean kidnap? I mean, they, they, they try to be clever about it. So one crew sure. member's like, oh... Don't worry, boy. We'll just take you home. Where do you want to go? Just name a place. Name any place. Come on the like. Come on the ship. We'll take you there. Right? Sure, sure, sure. Um. So the boy tells him he wants to go to Naxos. He lives in Naxos. Take me there. So Ceotes starts directing the ship towards Naxos, being the helmsman and all. Um. But you know, as soon as he turns there, the crew just starts yelling at him again. He goes, "No, we're not taking him there. We're taking him wherever we want. Turn the other way, Ceotes." And you know, he's like, no, this is dumb. I'm not doing it. I quit. Like, I'm pretty sure this is the god and I don't want to mess with this. And like, see you later. So he kind of runs to the back of the ship and cowers in fear. Um, <laughs> um, Ethalion took the helm and uh, turns the ship around away from Naxos. But, you know, it's at this moment when he turns the ship around, the boy starts feigning, you know, some great distress. And, oh, woe is me. How dare you take me somewhere I don't want to go. I'm so scared and upset. I'm so helpless. How dare you? Anyways, he goes on with some theatrics, according to Ovid. Um, and then some crazy stuff goes down in pretty quick succession. So first the ship freezes, just stops moving completely. Yep. Um, the ocean moves around it, but it doesn't move. Um, and they row and row and row, but it does nothing. Um, and then second, Ivy starts working and winding its way all around the oars and creeps up the sails and grows berries and just, you know, Ivy all over the boat. Uh, definitely they can't row now. So the ship is frozen. It they tough. can't row. Yeah. Um, the decks were covered with vines and grapes and then... Basically he cast entangle. <laughs> he exactly did that. Mm-hmm. Um... And then he stands up and he's Bacchus and not a boy. Um, and, you know, his head was crowned with grapes. He's holding a spear draped with vine leaves. All of a sudden, phantoms of tigers, lynxes, and panthers appear all around Bacchus. Sure. Uh, so the pirates got pretty scared. Oh. Um, I mean, I guess I can see why. They all throw themselves overboard to save their lives. They just jump off the ship, and except for Ascetes, who just just scared in the corner again. Um, and when they hit the water, they immediately begin to change shape. Okay. Their backs hunch over, their arms and legs turn into fins and tails, and they grow snouts and turn deep blue in color. And and thus dolphins. Thus yes, hmm. and thus the dolphin. Um, these are Tyrian pirates in what became known as the Tyrian Sea, by the way. Okay. I don't think there's anything magical about that other than the fact that lots of different dolphins live there. I tried to Google it to see if there was one particular dolphin. Sure. Yeah, no, there's lots of dolphins there. Um, Of the 20 crew members, as I said, Asiates is the only one who survived um, and kept, well, in his original form. And he was terrified, but Bacchus was kind of just like, heh, dopey, you and I are cool, you didn't do anything. In fact, you're my priest now. Let's go. (laughs) So, you know. But the ship is still frozen with... Ivy and vines and stuff. Well, yeah, the ship is still frozen until, I'm assuming, Bacchus unfreezes it because he is the god who did it and all that, right? So, Ovid just says they went off to Naxos, so I'm assuming he unfroze it. Okay. 
Yeah. I mean, fine. I assume if he has the ability to freeze in the first place, he might have the ability to unfreeze it. I mean, that's not how the you story Frozen goes, but... <laughs> she did it in the end. Kind of, she yeah. She just needed some love or something. Something like that. Um, I think that was the moral of the story. So, I know that this, this story did not involve someone turning into a plant. Mm. Um, but, you know, we talked about Bacchus last time. We talked about the grapes and ivies being sacred to him. And I just needed to talk about them some more. So... There you go. We get that story. There were grapes and ivy on the boat, so, you know. <laughs> well, at least the ivy. Did they um, start sprouting grapes as well on the boat? Or just when he, on his staff he had grape leaves and Um, I such. believe I did say that the, the deck the deck had... Got it. Um, a vineyard on it. Uh, basically. I think that's what happened. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, ivy, hedera helix, and grape vitis vinifera um, feature heavily in that story. Which gives me an excuse to talk about them now. Great. Um, as we talked about last time, it would be quite difficult to overstate the importance of the grape and wine in, in Greco-Roman culture. Um, so the grape is native to Southern Europe and the Middle East. And then they probably cultivated it for the first time in the Caucasus regions. Caucasus regions. Okay. Um, and then it spread to Mesopotamia and then Syria and then on to Greece and from there on to Italy and as everything else, then the Romans spread viticulture through their whole empire. Sure. Um, which made grapes one of the three main products of Mediterranean agriculture, along with olives and grain. So those are the big three. All pretty good ones, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the selection of wine back then, much more expansive than I knew. Really? Pliny the Elder hmm. spoke of 91 different varieties of wine. Did they all cure different things or all cure everything? Um, knowing Pliny, different kinds of wines would have helped with different things, but it would have been more like light wine, dark wine, you know, dry wine, wine, wet wine. Darkest wine. I don't think he would have, well, I say nothing because we'll get to Pliny one day. Sure. We'll get to Pliny. Um, the finest according to Pliny were from Thassos, Chios, which we just talked about. The Bay of Chios is where the pirates found um, and Lesbos in Greece, and then the Campania region of Italy. Mm. Does, does that sound familiar? Sounds I didn't like know the like region was named. Campaign. I didn't know the region was named that as far back as then. Yeah, me um, So it was common to add flavorings to wine, which included things like honey, marjoram, valerian root, hazelwort, thyme, juniper, myrtle, frankincense, myrrh. Yeah, all Just those kind of nice things. All that, yep. Yeah. In ancient Greece, wine spawned a cultural institution called the Symposium. This is where we get this word from. Symposium means drinking together. A symposium was just a gathering of upper-class men that happened after the evening meal. Okay. Um, They drank wine and talked. And they just named something fancy so they could feel fancy. Yeah, and have a reason, I guess. Uh, Yeah. Well, in the Roman world, the symposium was replaced by the convivium. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you if you pronounce it properly, convivium. They... If you don't, right? Convivium, um, which was more of a banquet and actually included women. So okay. yay for progress. But um, in these types of cultural settings, the wine is diluted. Oh, um, the symposium sure. leader, who's called the symposiarch, or a convivium leader. I'm not going to say it the silly way the whole time. It feels mm. it just feels too silly to me. Called the magister bibendi. Um, they predetermined, I know it's a funny word too. They predetermined the dilution ratio at the beginning of the evening. 
Sure. So everyone's going to be drinking, you know, half diluted wine or one third, whatever. Drinking undiluted wine was characteristic of a barbarian. Oh, um, yes, of course. Also, drunkenness was highly frowned upon. Right. Don't get drunk. The wine was supposed to stimulate, you know, intellectual debates and philosophical conversations. You know how it was. Just Socrates and Plato just standing around drinking wine. Those two people didn't. Did they? I probably the did. Or were they? Socrates and Plato? Yeah, I don't remember. Plato was Socrates' okay. uh, disciple. I mean, I knew that. That's A why I said of, that. A uh, lot of what is contributed to Socrates is from Plato's writings. And some people think that it's actually Plato's own thoughts masked as Socrates for credibility. Interesting. Um, so grapes were also used in a bunch of other ways for cooking. Vinegar was produced from secondary fermentation of wine. Um, they used vinegar in the culinary world to preserve olives and capers and parsley and fennel. Um, medicinally, vinegar was used for animal bites, ulcers, sciatica, epilepsy, loose teeth, depression, <laughs> coughs, asthma, liver disease, and more. Um, so, you know, just like wine, it was quite a cure-all. Yeah. The right. other plant featured in the story is the ivy. Um, so wine and the grapevine were symbols of life, but ivy was even more so. Okay. It became such a powerful symbol of life that it was viewed as an embodiment of Bacchus. Wherever ivy grew in abundance, Bacchus's presence was felt. So, you know, that's a great way to feel Bacchus in your garden is planting a wall of ivy. Sure. Um, because it was so attractive and sacred... Um, it was one of the most favorite, famous, favorite, famous, both, maybe a little bit both, famous Famous and favorite, yeah, plants in Roman gardens. Um, there's, we have evidence like of ancient letters written, um, between some Roman statesmen where they're complimenting the state of the ivy in each other's gardens. And there's paintings they found with the ivy being prominently featured from gardens. So some pretty cool evidence there. Um, but Alas, on to the next story. We're just going to just kind of... Keep going. Keep going here. Go for um, it. The next story is about a nymph named Echo, mm. who cannot speak except to copy another's words, and Narcissus, a 16-year-old boy. Um, he seems to like himself, I think. <laughs> yeah, but like, I don't know. After you read this story enough times, I start to feel bad for him. Oh, yes. I really feel like it's his fault. Like, who yes. says he has to have relations with somebody if he doesn't want to that is unfair true so poor classic story though poor echo's story is tragic in in itself um she used to be quite the chatterbox until she started using that skill to distract juno shocking doing something bad to the gods ends up bad for you so she started to hold Juno's attention with these lengthy conversations so that Jupiter could hook up with other nymphs behind Juno's back. And then Juno, who can't do anything to Jupiter every time he steps out on her, Mm -hmm. um, does what she normally does and takes her anger out on the powerless nymph, leaving her only with the ability to repeat the last words that she heard. Yeah. Kind of like an echo. I, I think everyone knew where that was going. Oh, I, I didn't not, know if they needed not, to settle It's not particularly not. the transformation that this story is about. I know. But there, it, it is also a different kind of transformation, which is pretty cool. That, yeah. You know, there's different aspects of transformation in this story. So Narcissus is um, possibly a demigod. He may or may not be the son of a river god. Who knows? It's very confusing. Yeah. They just call him a boy. Yeah. <laughs> Again, probably 15, 16 like whatever we're gonna call him 16 great um he's he's beautiful 
He's yes. so beautiful. Everyone loves him. Everyone wants him. Men, women, nymphs. Exactly. God. I mean, just everyone, yeah. Um, but he doesn't care for anyone else at all. He's just not interested in anything. He just wants to hunt. Correct. Um, and, and then Echo sees him in the forest. And she, as these stories go, is instantly smitten and in love. So she starts to stalk him, let's say. Um, one time, he gets separated from his hunting partner. And Echo takes her chance, uh, catching him alone, and approaches him. But all she can do is repeat back what he's saying to her. And he kind of, you know, gets a little creeped out. And then she tries to kiss him. And he throws her away and says he's repulsed by her and leaves. Correct. So Echo is ashamed. She slinks back into the forest. She hides her face with leaves. Then in her shame, she starts inhabiting caves. Only caves. And her love for Narcissus wasn't dampened by this you know, reaction from him. And, and instead, maybe it was even stronger. And so this kind of shame and love combination um, just caused her too much mental pain and her body wasted away. Her moisture evaporated into the air and finally only her voice remained. So yes, she's an echo. And uh, that's just, you know, a side story though. Correct. It's not the end of the story. Let's get back to Narcissus. Um, now the why behind this goddess intervention is up for debate. Uh, but however it happens, the next thing that happens is the goddess Nemesis gets involved. Uh, for the record, Ovid's, Ovid is implying it's Narcissus's own fault that this happens because he rejects everybody. Um, who tried, you know, everyone that tries to get with him, he just rejects them. And apparently that just means he's full of himself. Not that he just doesn't have to be with somebody, but... That wasn't allowed, apparently. Correct. So, um, Ovid basically says one of his rejected admirers calls out to ask a god or goddess to curse him. That he should have to experience loving something that he can't have the same way, you know, she has or, or Echo has or whatever. Other versions say, say different things, like, you know, that Nemesis just saw what happened to Echo and was somehow getting revenge. Because, as you know... Nemesis is the goddess of enemies. Revenge, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <clears throat> Thanks for playing along. Um, so, the next time Narcissus is thirsty, he finds a pristine silvery pond that has never been disturbed by animals, hunters, or shepherds. I don't know why that's important, but Ovid writes about it, so I included it. Of course. He drinks from it, and while he drinks, he catches sight of his reflection. And now he's instantly smitten with himself. Yes. Um, but at first he doesn't know it's just his reflection. He just thinks it's the most beautiful boy and he wants him really, really, really badly. Mm -hmm. um, he, he doesn't eat or drink. He starts to waste away. Yep. Just like poor Echo. But he does realize it's only his reflection. It just doesn't help. Then he's kind of driven mad uh, with grief because he finally understands that he cannot and will not ever have this thing he's yearning for. Um, so I'm going to read right from Ovid here. As golden wax melts with a gentle flame and morning frost soften in the warming sun, thus did Narcissus melt, wasted away through love and consumed by hidden fire. I thought that was nice. That's a nice bit of poetry. In this place, the nymphs found a flower with white petals circling a saffron yellow center. The face of the flower was turned down toward the earth because Narcissus died while looking down at the water, hoping for one more glance at his love. Mm -hmm. 
which is, you know, what the flower looks like. A downturned face, white petals around the, um, the flower in question is probably the poet's Narcissus, Narcissus poeticus, but there's like 50 something species of the Narcissus flower. So it may or may not be that specific one. Sure. Um, in the ancient world, the Narcissus was prized for its smell and it was really popular in perfumes and floral crowns and garlands because of that. In another one of his works, Ovid tells us that the Narcissus bulbs are one of the necessary ingredients to make exfoliants, along with barley, eggs, vetch, which is like a legume. I don't know that one. Okay, sure. And staghorns. Okay. To make an exfoliant. I don't really get it. Do you use the staghorns to just scrape it? Or like, I don't know. I, don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'm not really is it like... understanding what that, what this recipe is. Reindeer felt kind of seems like it would fall into that kind of... I don't of... know. Staghorns is the translation I read. Yeah, I'm just thinking like... I don't know. Okay, sure. Don't try to puzzle out their medicine. Their medicine was whack. I'll ask um, Pliny next time I see him. Pliny the Elder had some medical theory. Oh, did he? Okay, great. <laughs> about the narcissist. He recommended... It's like you can see my screen. I mean, technically, but I'd have to read then. I know. I know you didn't actually read it. Um, Pliny recommended beating the narcissus roots and mixing them with honey to make an ointment for splinters, scratches, burns, bruises, abscesses, strained muscles, or joint pain. Mm -hmm. Um, Pliny thought that narcissus oil could soften your skin or alleviate frostbite or dissolve uterine tumors, but only if you take it as a suppository Mm. because... That makes any sort of difference to the fact that your uterus is not connected to your digestive system directly. It doesn't really matter which end you shove it in. You're still... Anyways, so that was a a guess at a left field there. The flowers and the roots and the bulbs um, were used as an emetic. So, like, to make people throw up. Mm -hmm. Um, But they also use them for cooking. So, I guess the poison, the dose. The dose makes the poison, right? They are... Paracelsus saying the dose makes the poison. So, but it is poisonous, or at least has some degree of poisonous. Yes, poison to it. Okay. Um, you know, and making people throw up was a great way to get their humors back in balance. You know. Uh, Yes, very humorous. See our like second episode if you want to learn more about the four humors. Yeah. The Narcissus in a Roman garden would have been associated, obviously, with this story, but um, more so with Proserpina, who is Persephone. Okay. In um, Greek mythology. And Pluto, that helps. who is Hades. <laughs> yeah. According to their myth, which I didn't have time for, but is also a beautiful one in a Ovid. A wonderful one, yeah. Um, the earth put forth a Narcissus with a hundred blooms to lure Proserpina away from her friends. And when she reached out to pluck one of the blooms, because she was intoxicated by the flower's sweet fragrance, that's when the earth opened up before her and Pluto sprang out to kidnap her. Mm-hmm. Um, and kidnap in in these translations was a nice way of saying... Abscond with. And rape. Yeah. Let's just uh, let's just make that clear because I'm probably going to mostly say kidnap or abduct going forward. But the connotation is clear. Yeah. This flower was important to myth like that myth. So they're, they're more associated with it in the gardens. Um. That story ends in the creation of the pomegranate, right? The, the pomegranate is the more the more famous um, flora associated with that. Um, there, those two gods, yes. But. I know, but, but that specific story it, it describes the birth, not the birth, but the creation of the pomegranate. I thought 
Probably. Yeah, I think so. I couldn't tell you. Like I said, I didn't have time to include that one, unfortunately. Okay. Um, but one I did have to include. Tell me about this one. Well, last episode, remember, I talked about um, Venus and Adonis. Yes. And I kind of mentioned that there's a bit of a crazy story be- behind Adonis's birth. Mm-hmm. So I think we should tell that story. Okay. The story of Mira and Cinerus. So I can kind of explain that whole that whole thing. Um, so first, a little note. In Greek mythology, this same story occurs, but the characters are named Smyrna and Thais, not Mira and Cinerus. Hmm. I don't recognize any of the names. Okay, keep going. So from last time, you may remember that uh, Mira and Cinerus are both daughter and father, and also the mother and father of Adonis, the stunning boy that Venus fell in love with, mm-hmm. who was killed by a wild boar and transformed into the poppy anemone. Yes. But um, how did all of that happen exactly? Because it's not what you think. This story offers a surprising twist on the classical incest narrative, which is a very weird thing to say. Yeah. I, I know that. I said it, and then I'm like, this is a weird sentence. Okay. Well. But it's true. Because Mira, as a teenager, is in love with her father, King Cinerus. Um, In the Greek version, Aphrodite caused this love in Mira as a punishment for her either not worshipping Aphrodite hard enough or giving her good enough gifts or whatever thing Aphrodite felt like. Um, Or maybe for her mother breaking about Mira's beauty. You know how that goes. Yeah. Um, It's... Yeah, it's kind of dark, but that's just how it goes. Ovid, however, tells us this love was... Um, the doing of the fates. Okay. Well, why did the fates do this to her? It was my question. He doesn't say. <laughs> and we're talking about the fates, like the... The three fates. The three fates who live from in From the underworld. Yeah, okay. Yes. Got it. So he doesn't say in this story, but the thoughts, the scholarly thoughts from people that know more about this than me, they say, just before this story in Metamorphoses, is the story of Pygmalion. Hmm. And Pygmalion is Mira's grandfather. Okay. On her mother's side. Okay, sure. Well, that helps because things get really confusing when father and daughter, and then if they're both, yeah. Things get confusing if it's on her father's side, right? Since this is an incestuous thing here. So Pygmalion's Mira's grandfather, and Pygmalion was one of the most famous examples of a mortal punished by the gods for incest. Mm-hmm. Um, Correct. And there was like, so there's some thinking by the scholars that this is like a curse on Pygmalion's house type of thing, even though that wasn't explicit. And so by virtue of that, Mira was doomed. Mira was doomed from the start. Okay. Um, And so, yes, so she's in love with her father and she does know how weird that is. Like she's, she's mentally suffering for this. She knows it's odd and, and there's nothing to do about it really. And so she decides to hang herself. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so she makes too much noise, though, and her nurse comes in and saves her. Um, and, and this nurse, you know, old nurse that Mira's known her whole life type of thing. So she, she knows something's wrong with Mira, but Mira's too ashamed to tell her what it is. And after a lot of tears and anguish, finally the nurse gets it out of her. And I mean, she's not thrilled by who it is that Mira's in love with. Um, but she's decided that, you know. It, she either gets Mira what she wants or Mira kills herself. So she's going to get Mira what she wants. That's what, you know, she tells her that. She's going to help her. Um, now, 
at this time in the kingdom, all the young women were celebrating the yearly festival of Ceres, um, Demeter in the Greek world, so yeah, the, okay. the goddess of agriculture. Yeah. And Ovid implies that this, like, you know, it's traditional during the festival that young women sleep with the king. Okay. On a nightly basis. I don't know how the queen feels about it, but uh, let's be real. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It wouldn't have mattered. It appears to be um, culturally relevant. And, right. Yeah. So so the nurse finds Cinerus and tells him she knows of a beautiful, passionate young lady who wants to share his bed that night. How old? Asks Cinerus. Apparently this is the one and only question to ask. And the nurse says, same age as Mira, which is apparently old enough because he says, great, bring her to me tonight. Um, the nurse leads Mira to the king's bedroom under total cover of darkness and hands her over, saying, take her, she is yours, Cinerus. And then the same thing happens the next night and the next. Mira keeps coming back night after night at length, according to Ovid. And finally... It's a long festival. <laughs> right? I don't know if this is a festival anymore or just a founded side chick. I don't know. Okay. So finally Cinerus gets curious, though, about who this mysterious lover is. And what she might look like. Um, so he brings in a light. Apparently this whole time, every part of it has been complete darkness. Sure. And he kind of, you know, freaked out. Tried to kill her. Because this is sinful and awful and all that stuff. Um, she escapes and starts running and runs and runs and runs and runs for nine months. Until her womb is scarcely able to carry its burden. Mm-hmm. She lies down and cries out for the gods to make her numb and let her live in a state of limbo between life and death. So, says Ovid, There is always some deity accessible to those who confess. For as she spoke, the earth rose over her lower legs, roots bursting from her toenails spread sideways, stabilizing a tall trunk. Her bones put forth wood. Her blood became sap running through New Wood's heart. Her arms became thick branches, her fingers thinner ones, her skin hardened into bark. But even though she's a tree, she's still crying. A um, Often says, in these tears resides honor. The myrrh dripping from the wood will keep its mistress's name to be forgotten by no future age. Mira, um, it's pronounced Mira and... Okay. But it's spelt like myrrh with an A on it. Okay. Uh, myrrh is from a tree. Did you know that? I did I not. I did not. <laughs> so, so yeah, myrrh is a tree. Okay. And it was named after Mira, which is how you say it in Greek, apparently. I looked this up. And, uh, and I mean, like that's her name. And, and it actually is what it means in Greek. So that's pretty cool. But this pregnant tree starts moaning and moaning and moaning. Moaning. She just moans for a long time. Apparently, you know, it's kind of awful. So the goddess of childbirth named uh, Lucina helps the tree split open so Adonis can pop out. Then the naiad nymphs take the baby and bathe him in his mother's tears. Sure, I think that's I th- <laughs> that's just a whole other thing. Um, so <laughs> I found this very poetic analysis that said, you know, if we're going off Ovid's premise of a doomed bloodline, basically, that, you know, Mira never had a chance and she was predestined to forever embrace the soil she stems from. I thought that's kind of like a double meaning yeah. with the father and the... Anyways, and the I thought that was... Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. That was cool. So, common myrrh. Comophora myrrh is the primary source of the incense and spice known as myrrh. 
I, again, cool. had no idea. It came from a tree. Yeah. So in ancient Greece, um, they would make a gum out of the resin. Like, a, like a, it has a really thick resin. Um, so they would make incisions in the stem and let the resin ooze out. And then when it hardened, they would harvest a bunch of gum at once kind of thing. Okay. Cool. Um, Theophrastus said that the incisions should preferably be made at the rising of the star Sirius in midsummer on the hottest days. That's how you get the best gum. All right. I mean, temperature-wise, that probably makes sense, yeah? Yeah. Got it. Alexander the Great's men used, like, copious amounts of myrrh for, for literally everything. They scented their tents and their bedding, and they rubbed it on their skin when they were exercising or when they are in baths. And basically, when they went abroad and they didn't have olive oil to rub on everything, they just changed that out for myrrh, and they used myrrh for everything. I'm sure myrrh lasted longer, carried easier. If well, it's a gum, it's not like a it's, liquid. It's more like, yeah, they didn't take the olive oil with them. The myrrh was where they were because myrrh oh, is from Arabia. It was okay. one of the most valuable commodities that they produced in Arabia. And it was the only place that produced it. So oh, then in the okay. second century CE, the Romans go and conquer Arabia, which then increases the availability of myrrh, spreads it across the whole empire. Sure. It, you know, a little less rare and stuff now. Um, but they burned it for all sorts of reasons in the Roman world. They used it to commune with the gods, to honor their guests, to send funeral pyres, to disguise the smell of death and blood at the amphitheater, which, what? Why did the uh, amphitheater smell like death and blood? That's my question. Um, uh, because I, of dead people. I don't have an answer to that question. My sure. curiosity is not satisfied there. <laughs> I couldn't really Google that one. Why does the amphitheater smell like death? Do not return it. Any results that were useful. Um, so myrrh has a very stable scent. So they used it more as a rub than an incense. So in perfumes, they sure. used it for their hair and their clothes and their pets. Apparently they it was popular to rub your pets with myrrh. Well, why not? Pets like smelling good too. I mean... Or it drove them crazy because their sense of smell is much better. Who knows? Yeah, or dogs like to roll in anything with the scent. Yeah. <laughs> Medicinally, um, they supposed that myrrh could treat the... I see, I have to be careful about how I word these things. They supposed myrrh could treat dry skin, inflammation, hemorrhoids, tetanus, kidney failure, excessive menstruation, and irritations of the digestive tract. Okay. They also thought it could speed up wound healing, extract a dead fetus, clear your complexion, darken your hair, and increase your hair growth. How much of that did Pliny come up with? <laughs> I don't have an answer for you there. Okay. Probably some of it. Yeah. I mean, he came up with most things. Like Correct. His whole compendium, his encyclopedia of knowledge. I'm sorry we keep talking about Pliny the Elder. It, that's all. Yeah. Guys, I'm going to do an episode on him. He's so interesting. Um, so anyways, myrrh was a useful exotic plant that was a real symbol of status and wealth. So, you know, it's not going to surprise you to hear how common it was in Roman gardens as a, just a plain status symbol. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. On to our next myth. Okay. We're going to talk about Apollo a little bit in the next few. Um, so our next myth tells the story of the god Apollo, who has the same name in Greek and Roman mythology to make it easy, and, uh, and Daphne, who is another nymph. So Apollo, um, he's the god of a lot of things. Archery, music, dance, truth, prophecy, healing, diseases, light, poetry, the sun, on and on. Yeah. Um, he is the son of Jupiter, slash Zeus, and the titan Leto. And the twin brother of Diana slash Artemis, goddess of the hunt. Yep. So just before the beginning of this particular story, Apollo has killed the python. 
by shooting it with 1,000 arrows. It's not a very economic use of your arrows, but fine. I mean, when you're apparently it took 1,000 arrows. What are you sure. going to do? Uh, fine. The python was a chthonic serpent dragon who was a child of Gaia and the guardian of the Delphic Oracle. So I'm going to say it, it probably definitely required all those 1,000 arrows. Okay. Apollo prophesied the death of the python when he was still in Leto's womb. As an aside, apparently Apollo had a quite a habit of predicting things correctly from within the womb before he was born. What about afterwards? He didn't say anything about that. Okay. I, I don't know. But it does say he is the god of prophecy. So I'm going to assume he made some prophecies after he was born, too. Maybe. That's an assumption, but I feel good about it. Okay. So why did Apollo kill Python? Well, it attacked his mother. Oh, yeah, okay. Some sources say that happened when he was a child. Some say it happened when she was still pregnant with him and Diana. Um, but either way, this was purely kind of like a vengeance thing. Or like a, I'm a manly ancient god, so I must kill things. Sure. And this seems thing. like a good target because I have a reason. Kind of a reason. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So Apollo's slaying of the python is super important to him as, as a character and lots of his stories. Just, it's a very important thing in Apollo's um, biography in <laughs> 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 his storyline. Yeah. Um, and it's actually the basis of many of his most infamous or famous characteristics depending so we're going to talk more about it a little bit later because this story is not about the python it's about daphne daphne so setting the scene apollo killed the python he's standing there feeling pretty full of himself he looks over and he sees cupid eros standing there just with his quiver and his bow and apollo just starts to taunt him for not really any good reason just you're not uh, as much of a man as me. How dare you have a bow? You don't deserve to touch a bow. I'm so good at killing things. I am god of archery. Well, you're a child with a bow. Ha ha ha. Um, so not surprisingly, Cupid is not a fan of this. Says to Apollo, Your bow may strike everything else, Phoebus Apollo, but let mine strike you. And however much all living things are inferior to a god, so much lesser is your glory than mine. And so he shoots Apollo with an arrow. Right through the bone, Ovid says. And then Cupid shoots a second arrow. But this one's a doll arrow. Mm. And he hits the nymph, the nymph Daphne. Now, this arrow was made specially to drive love away. Oh. Those two arrows were a pretty potent combo of making Apollo want her and making her specifically not want him. Um, but Daphne had already been determined to live her life as a virgin before she was hit by this arrow, um, because Daphne is devoted to the goddess Diana, who, yes, is known for being a ma master huntress, but is also known for being a perpetual virgin. Right. So she already didn't want none, then got hit by this love is repulsive arrow, and, uh... Doubled down. Yeah. So Apollo wants Daphne to, to marry her, of course. Uh in quotes, Nothing untoward here. Ovid uh, creepily describes him for paragraphs, fantasizing about every part of her. It's, it is kind of creepy. Um, chasing after her through the forest. He keeps calling to her, trying to impress her. After a while, he's, he pulls out the My Dad is Jupiter card, but she doesn't slow down. Um, so he chases her for a really long time. And she, you know, she knows she can't keep this up. Um, she's terrified. 
which is just, again, so creepy, but whatever. She calls out to her father, the river god Peneus. Help me, father, if you have a river's divine power, change and corrupt these looks that have drawn too much attention. So just as Apollo reaches out to finally grab Daphne, she turns into a tree. I thought you were going to say ugly, but that's fine. This would stop most men. Uh, most. But not Apollo. Mm, so no, he, Apollo. he reaches a whole new level of creepy here. So first he just feels the tree up for a bit. Sure. Then he starts hugging it and kissing it. And then he whispers to the tree, Though mm. you cannot be my wife, you will be my sacred tree. My hair will always be adorned with your leaves, sweet laurel, as will my kithara and quiver. And just as uncut locks adorn my youthful head, you too shall wear the eternal honor of your leaves. Like, like she doesn't... Take a hint, Apollo, back off. Mm. She doesn't let... Evergreen. Yes. The sweet laurel, bay laurel, is an evergreen plant. And cool. it comes from that, yes. Um, Loris nobilis. Mm. An evergreen plant that wears its leaves in all seasons. Very cool. You got the play on words there, yes. I did, yes. So Daphne is actually a Greek word that means laurel. Oh. Yeah, that's where we got the, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, see what I mean? I just go back to the Greek a few times. Like Myra and sure. Daphne. These things just like mean that tree. That's what that word means. Okay. Um, in ancient times, the bay laurel was popular as an ornamental garden plant, and they also used it to flavor meats and stews. Bay leaves, you know. Yeah. Um, medicinally, they used it for exhaustion, flu, liver and kidney problems, and, you know, other stuff, like like always. Um, but mythologically, a famous laurel tree grew at Apollo's primary sanctuary, which was at Delphi. Yeah. And it was at Delphi because... Apollo, well, because Delphi was all about predictions and oracling and stuff. Well, no, it was at Delphi because he killed the Python, who was guarding Delphi. He took it, basically. That was, that's why I was saying before that the Python was actually really important to uh, Apollo's whole story. Okay. Um, the Greeks thought Delphi was the center of the earth. And that it, and you know, it was the most important oracle in the classic world. This was yeah. the oracle that, for instance, you know, predicted the whole Oedipus thing. Yeah, you've probably heard a lot of the, you know, predictions that this oracle at Delphi has made. So, you know, Apollo's defeat of the Python won him Delphi from Gaia. This was Gaia's oracle. I see. Gaia had her offspring, the monster, guarding in, and then she had to was made by Jupiter Zeus eventually to give it over to Apollo. Um, so the oracle, of, who is Apollo's priestess, is known as. Do you know this? No. The Pythia. Oh. Or Pythia, if I was going to say it properly, owing to Assassin's Creed Odyssey. I, was I, know say, how I do, to I do these know things. this word and its significance, but I didn't. The know Pythia. That. Yeah. After the Python. Very cool. The Pythia inhaled intoxicating vapors and chewed laurel leaves to enhance her psychic trance. Um, the Python also lends its names to the Pythian Games, which were an ancient Greek athletic contest held at Delphi to honor Apollo. Um, the winners were given crowns of laurel to signify victory, just like Apollo wore after he defeated the Python. And laurel branches were also used to sweep holy places and purify houses after death. Um, I'm sure you know what the laurels in the hair look like yep. with, the, with the Victoria. Like pretty it's, it's classic. A pretty, it's a, yes, it's a pretty iconic um, ancient Greco-Roman um, yeah. symbol. So, yeah, that's this plant. 
Uh, and by the time we get to Rome, laurels still represent victory, but also, you know, prominence and prosperity. So that's why in the Roman world, you'll see the laurels on like a general or yep. you know, politician. Um, it was the primary way, like the primary way of getting status in Rome was usually the military, right? So, so the higher status you are, the, the more you wear these laurels and carry laurel branches. Like Augustus, who we talked about him last time, always depicted with laurel. Yeah. Um, so speaking of Apollo, he's responsible for the transformation of another one of his loves. Um, except for this one's actually kind of nice until the end. But, you know, it's much nicer than the last story. Okay. Leaps and bounds. Um, so Hyacinthus was mm. a Spartan youth. I'm sure you can guess what plant we were going to talk about. I can guess. Hyacinthus was a Spartan youth who is of radiant beauty, he's described. Um, I'm not sure how old he is again. Uh, we're just going to call him a teenager, though. And our guy Apollo is completely smitten with Hyacinthus and spends all his time with him. He loses interest in his usual hobbies and responsibilities. These dudes are in love. And Hyacinthus, he loves athletics, as any good Spartan would. Sure. Um, one day, he and Apollo decide to practice throwing the discus. But first, they take the time to remove each other's clothes and rub each other down with olive oil. And All the better for discus. Because this is a romantic discus-throwing date. You know, you know the type of date I'm talking about, I'm sure. Those romantic Olympian events you know yeah so apollo he throws first and he sends the disc flying up to scatter the clouds as Ovid says hyacinthus runs after it excited for his turn but somehow the discus hits him in the head and kills him ovid has a beautiful passage about apollo holding hyacinthus desperately trying to use all his skills with medicine to heal him and keep him alive but can't save him apollo is devastated and cries out, if only I could restore your life for you. Alas, I am constrained by the laws of death, but you will always be with me and linger on my unforgetting lips. My songs and the lyre, strummed by my hand, will remember you, who take the form of a new flower, will reproduce my lamentations and its markings. The time will come when Ajax, that strongest of heroes, will associate himself with this flower, his name to be read on the petals. There's a prophecy. Mm -hmm. Because shockingly later the flower is associated with it it's almost like Ovid knew what was gonna happen next almost so I mean almost like Apollo could I mean, prophesize what was gonna happen next right so Apollo makes a flower spring up from Hyacinthus's blood a purple flower brighter even than Phoenician dye mm. which is a callback to our first snail episode yep so Ovid also says Apollo inscribed the flower with the sounds of his grief right that, that, remember that part that I, I just do. read? Yeah, Lamentations. Yeah. Wasn't that long ago. And uh, and in, in Greek, the sound is I. I. Um, A-I. I. Now, confusingly, this flower is not the hyacinth. <laughs> Got you. You did. It's not the hyacinth. Um, as there is nothing on the petals that looks like ink or writing or like whatever flower off it's talking about here is not the thing that we call a hyacinth now. Oh. Um, likely contenders Fine. are maybe an iris, orchid, larkspur, or corn lily. And on a side note, just to address the Ajax thing, um, what that means is, so AI would be the representation of the short representation of Ajax's name in Greek. 
So in Greek, Ajax is Ias, A-I-A-S. And for okay. short, it would be A-I. So um, what Ovid's doing is tying into an earlier Greek myth, which said that the hyacinth sprang from the dead Ajax's blood at Troy, where he died. Okay. Anyway, so Ovid's trying to kind of tie in something that was already written with why his story is a little different by making Apollo make a prediction that later it will tie in together. Yeah. Tricky. So Inception levels of deep there. Right. So another version of this myth, uh, Zephyrus, the West Wind, was also in love with Hyacinthus and therefore jealous of Apollo. And he deliberately blows the discus into Hyacinth's head, which kills him. Which makes a little more sense about how the discus could have somehow killed him when he was trying to go get it, but whatever. Sure. Um, Hyacinthus became an important religious figure, actually. Um, he was particularly worshipped in Sparta. I mean, he was Spartan. mythologically a Spartan, so yeah. Um, during a three-day festival called Hyacinthia. Um, the festival included mourning rites for his death and then a celebration of his rebirth as a flower, which is quite similar, if you remember, to the story of Adonis that we talked about last time. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hyacinthia was important enough to the Spartans that they were said to have broken off military campaigns in, to, in like to return home just to celebrate it on time. Which, as you might know, Sparta, Sparta liked their military campaigns. Um, and now, last but not least, I believe, um, because we don't have time for much more. We're going to tell one last story, which involves Minerva. So if you remember, that's Athena in Greek mythology. Um, And a woman, you know, a girl, let's say girl. Okay. Called Arachne. Hmm. Um, Now, we're a teenager. Again, picture some kind of teenager. Sure. Ovid describes Arachne as a girl from Lydia, which is like modern Turkey. With eight legs. Uh, <laughs> not yet. This is metamorphosis. You have to wait. Despite her humble beginnings as the daughter of a textile worker, she has risen to fame due to her remarkable weaving skills. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> You're ruining my story. I am, yeah. That's what I'm not saying. Her anything. weaving is so intricate and her creation so artistic that nymphs come from the mountains and the rivers just to watch Arachne making her pieces. And they get trapped Um, like bugs. She's so good, Ovid writes, that you would have sworn she had been taught by Minerva. You see, Minerva slash Athena is not only the goddess of wisdom, um, which is probably her most famous role, but also uh, music, poetry, medicine, commerce, the crafts, and weaving. Mm. But Arachne, well, she knows she wasn't taught by Minerva, and she's not shy about saying it. Uh, one thing she clearly didn't know, however, is how bad of an idea it is to compare herself to a god. Um, bad, bad idea. So Arachne not only tells everyone she wasn't taught by Minerva, but also that she's, she's better. better than Minerva as well. Mm-hmm. And she, she tells everyone, just like, no, I'll prove it. It's fine. I'm confident in myself. Um, so Minerva... Oh, hears about this through the grapevine and comes to Arachne disguised as an old woman. You know what? You know this story already. No, I think I I do, but there's also tropes. People on this podcast might not know this story. You're you're right. This is a standard Greek, Greco-Roman trope She advises Arachne that she should beg Minerva for pardon. 
But Arachne refuses, obviously. So Minerva reveals her true identity to try to intimidate her. And Arachne said, like, I'm not intimidated. Let's do this. Weaving contest. I don't know what weaving contests normally entail. But this one was just, you know, they were each going to make a weaving. It doesn't say how they would be judged. It doesn't say anything like that. Because it obviously doesn't matter. Yeah. It's a god. Um, so Minerva's weaving. Let's talk about what she did. It showed her competition with Neptune over the city of Athens. Neptune is Poseidon in Greek mm-hmm. mythology, if you remember this, yes. Um, so you see, the gods, uh, they wanted to have lots of cities under their patronage, is what it was called. Like, their protection. Yeah, sure. Uh, so that the people would honor them by building them temples and giving them gifts and sacrifices. Yeah. So they began to divide the cities up among themselves and... Uh, when two gods wanted the same city, they, they got into it, you know? So this was the case with Athens. Pretty important city. The remaining gods of Olympus came down to judge the competition over Athens. Um, it was decided that whoever offered the best gift to the city was going to be the winner. Minerva struck the ground and olive tree sprouted full of fruits. It was a tree that would survive for thousands of years and is actually said to be the same tree that today stands on the Acropolis next to the Erechtheon building. Obviously, that's not literal truth, but it's a cool little mythological historical connection. Mm-hmm. Um, Neptune gifted the city a beautiful lake, but Neptune's the god of the sea. So it turns out it was salt water. Hmm. And so the city decided that, you know what, this fruit... So, so we're not saying she just gave them an olive tree and there's olives everywhere. This it's is like the, the creation of the olive tree. Which is pretty important. It was a pretty big gift. They were like, that's pretty useful. Salt water, not so much. Minerva's the winner. Or if I could put it a different way, Athena's the winner. And can In name Athens? the story. No way. <laughs> yeah, she named the city after herself. That's, that's how that went. Sure. Okay. So, basically, her weavings depict that whole scene. Like a dozen gods watching her and Neptune compete, a large olive tree in the center of the design. In each corner, she added a little story, a different story of a mortal who had been transformed into a plant or animal by the gods as punishment for blasphemy or arrogance or something. Okay. Um, and then around the edges, perhaps ironically, as the olive branch was a symbol of peace, she wove olives all around the frame. Arachne's tapestry, though had 18 different stories of the gods transforming themselves to approach mortals and taking advantage of them. Mm. So, so they were all Jupiter. <laughs> well, I was about to, you know, tell it, remind everyone that there are a lot more than 18 examples of this. Mm-hmm. She just picked some. Like, this is this is just a small selection. Just off the top of her head while right. it's readily available. Exactly. Yeah. Um, This is far more than enough to make a strong statement of defiance, though. Um, She directly contrasts Minerva's work by showing the gods transforming themselves to trick mortals rather than transforming mortals to punish them. I just found this kind of really interesting because it's like a whole other layer of metamorphosis going on inside of metamorphoses. A meta-metamorphosis, if you will. Yeah. Um, So she... Wove stories of Jupiter. You're right. Jupiter was a lot of them. Yeah, just from his exploits from the week before. Okay. So I'll give you the lowdown of things she included. Jupiter transforming into an eagle, a serpent, a swan, a golden shower. And yes, I know. 
I know what that sounds like, but that's le- legitimately. That's when that was with Io, right? The golden shower. I don't think it was Io, wasn't it? Helen's mother. No, that was a swan because she laid eggs. Mm. Um, I know. I know we'll the story that you're talking about, you but yeah, this, yes, mm-hmm. that he enters a woman as a golden shower. Yes, because yeah. she locks herself away or is locked away. I can't remember. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, moving on. A white bull, a satyr, fire, a shepherd, and. Even that story we talked about last week where Jupiter transforms himself into Amphitryon and fathered Hercules. Mm-hmm. Um, Neptune was, of course, included in this. <laughs> He's quite rapey. He was shown as a savage bull, a river, a ram, a horse, a bird, as he was when he raped Medusa, which is why Pegasus flies. Anyways. Yep. Um, and a dolphin. Apollo was there, too, of course, as a farmer, a hawk, a lion, and a shepherd. There was a few other random stories, but that was the bulk of them. Okay. And then Arachne frames her work with Ivy to finish it, probably as reference to Bacchus, who I think there was one instance of him on, on this uh, tapestry weaving as well. Sure. Um, so Minerva comes over and inspects Arachne's work and finds it flawless, but she can't deal with that because her god-sized ego was just too hurt. So she destroys the weaving and starts just beating Arachne with her staff. Um, so Minerva's rage scared Arachne so much, she tries to kill herself. She, uh, grabs the rope, tries to hang herself. By the last second, Minerva, it says, takes pity on her. As if she's, I mean, yeah, okay, she was bragging, but she was clearly worth it. She probably won that contest, otherwise Minerva wouldn't have freaked out, right? Yeah. Um, but it doesn't matter. Minerva took pity on her and said... You may live, you wicked girl, but keep hanging still. And lest you believe there be no further consequences, let the same terms of punishment apply also to your descendants, to the very last of them. So, you know, she just dooms her descendants to being the thing that she's about to be, which I'm pretty sure you all know what's coming here. Minerva sprinkles Arachne with a potion she's made from Hecate's herbs. Hecate, by the way, is a really powerful witch, if I haven't mentioned her before. Yep. I'll end with Ovid's words here. As soon as the baleful potion touched, off fell Arachne's hair, nostrils, and ears as well. Her head shrank very small, as did her whole body. Delicate limbs hung by her sides in place of arms and legs. All the rest of her a stomach, from which she still spun a thread. And now, having become a spider, she practiced weaving as she had done before. Yeah. Yeah, so... Another lovely story of a god just being kind of batshit crazy. Never has happened before. It's most of them, I know. Yeah. You might be wondering why I included that story. Didn't really talk about plants much, but it did. This was just my excuse to tell a story that I like. Yeah. I like this one. Um, a story that was in Ovid and does mention the mythological origins of a plant. The olive tree in this case. Exactly. So now I'm going to talk about olives. Okay. How, how could we make it through this whole thing without me talking about olives? They're pretty yeah, yeah. big, pretty big deal, right? I good note to end on. Um, olives were so important to ancient Greco-Roman culture that I just like I just needed to do this, you know. Sure. The olive is Olea europaea. It was probably domesticated in Syria and then migrated to Crete before coming to mainland Greece. And then we repeat that story from Greece. It migrated through Italy. And then once the Romans got a hold of it, it spread through their empire like wildfire. Yeah. Speaking of fire, 
Historically, Sparta um, wreaked complete havoc on Athens during some of their many wars by burning the Athenian olive groves. Oh. So this is a big this is a big problem because the olive tree or shrub is really, really long-lived. Like, it can live over a thousand years. Yeah. But it grows slowly. It takes seven to 15 years for an olive tree to start producing a crop of fruit. So if you burn a bunch of them at once, it's a, it was a hardship for sure. Yeah. We'll set um, them back for quite some time. Yes. And although the most valuable olive product was the oil, they did use all the parts of the plant. Olive wood was used for mm-hmm. door jams and statues, and olive leaves were used as a detergent. Um, they were also used medicinally to treat ulcers, headaches, and eye afflictions. Um, they would... It doesn't say that they ate olives raw. I'm sure they did, but it's, it's specifically focused on them brining the olives before they ate them. Yeah. It was very popular to brine them. Um, the pulp that was left behind after they extracted the oil, they used that as a pesticide and treatment for ailing olive trees. I don't yeah. know if that medicine worked any better than their people medicine did. I hope for the tree's sake you did, but... Sure. Olive oil, of course, was used for everything. In the culinary world, they taught bread or for marinades or dressings or just, like, they just put it in their food. Everything. Yes. Yeah. Um, They use it to fuel oil lamps as a base for medical salves, moisturizer for their skin and their hair, uh, cosmetic and perfume ingredient, cleanser, preservative. They scented it and burnt it as an offering to the gods. Just, Just everything. Um, And getting back to mythology, the olive was sacred to Jupiter as well as to Minerva. Um, The olive branch symbolized someone or something that was protected by Jupiter, something special or favored by him. Um, So, for example, Olympic athletes were depicted with sprigs of olive, Mm -hmm. as the Olympic Games were founded by Hercules in Jupiter's honor, mythologically speaking. Right. Um, And as you heard in the myth, olive trees were symbolic to Athens. There's a lot of olive trees there, at least in the ancient times. Sure. Attica, which is the region like surrounding Athens, was particularly well suited to olive trees. Um, the olive thrives in coastal areas of hot, dry summers, so it was just the perfect climate, and olives grew everywhere there. So the olive became the official icon of Athens. It appeared on its coins along with the owl, which was symbolic of Athena, Minerva, wisdom, and, and the wisdom. Um, olive oil was stored in specially produced jars called amphorae that were used as prizes for the Panathenaic Games. I think I said that right. Which were held in Athena's honor. And so there's a special grove that this oil that they would put in the amphorae came from for the prizes. Like it was a sacred grove. Um, and actually vandalizing the sacred olive grove was like sacrilegious and punished with exile and forfeiture of all your property. So, they, serious business is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I would love to keep talking about this forever, but I kind of already have because it's been over an hour. So, sorry about that, everybody. <laughs> um, I'm going to leave the mythology for now. And next episode, we will get into some not-so-ancient history. You know, like 100, 150 years ago type of history. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about the Chicago River. Very good. Yeah. So once again, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Mm